looking at in chapter 3 of Romans, open your Bible or, or your device <clears throat> with me to the book of Romans chapter 4, and then you can hold your place there and go back to chapter 3 or just turn the page back. And we're going to start where we left off last week, and as we know, context is extremely important as we study God's word. We've been looking at the righteousness of God, which is imputed to man. We're going to talk about those terms a little more this morning. Uh, Essentially, the opposite of self-righteousness is God's righteousness. And uh, Paul spent a lot of time familiarizing the people in Rome through this letter, uh, familiarizing them with not just the concept, but it's actually, it's a major doctrine in the Christian church. It's a major understanding of ours as to what it means to possess righteousness. The religious leaders of Jesus's day and in Paul's day, they thought that they could manufacture it through good works, uh, through their stuff. <laughs> and, and Jesus pointed out, Paul points out here, that's not possible. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things. You can't walk enough people across the street. You, it's just not possible. That's not the basis upon which humanity can be saved. So we're looking at this righteousness of God. He, he lays out essentially the doctrinal understanding in chapter 3. This morning we're going to go into the practical aspect and see that God justifies real people. And, and that's what it means to be justified. It means to be to be dipped, to be immersed in the righteousness of Christ. Because that's the only way someone can see heaven. Looking back at at the first century, I thought that this was interesting. I I had a little bit of side study here on culture. As you folks know, if if you've been around for a while, I teach in four different contexts. Uh, There's the cultural context, what's going on in the culture the historical context, where these events sit in history. And then there's the textual context, which is what, did, what is the original language? Is there some color or some information that we can glean from that? And then the contextual context, which is looking at a text in the broader context in which it is nestled. Because when we do that and when we observe, observe those four things, we can be pretty sure that we're getting it right. In the cultural context, there were some interesting things going on uh, in Rome. In, uh, <laughs> in, in Acts chapter 18, we see a couple that the Apostle Paul runs into in Corinth named uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And they were Jewish leaders, essentially, in the church. And they had been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius in the year 49, Romans was written somewhere around 57 or so. Now, in the interim, there would have been leaders that were Gentiles, and a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish, that were raised up in the church because the the Jews were the ones that were expelled. Claudius did an early persecution of the Jews, and he kicked them out. (laughs) Now, he was assassinated by his wife, uh, a woman by the name of Agrippina, uh, in around the year 54 or so, a few years after he got rid of the Jews out of Rome. And, and then she had a son who was sort of the stepchild, uh, and his name was Nero. 
he would ascend to rule in Rome and he would be one of the most evil rulers that Rome would ever know. Well, in the meantime, after Claudius was killed by his wife, the Jews began to filter back. We see that, we know that because Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned here in in Romans chapter 16 when Paul is saying, greet them for me. So as that was the case, there was probably, have you ever seen like in movies, they'll, they'll talk about where a guy went off to war and maybe he was a POW or something. He came back and everything had changed. His wife is remarried and this and that. It, it, it set up some strife. Well, so you have, now you have these Jewish leaders coming back to Rome after Claudius's death and they, they've come in and the people are, perhaps there was some strife. We know that Romans is not a letter of correction. We've talked about that. However, culturally, politically, there were things that were going on in that day that may have been, and I'm deep into interpretation here, that may have been the reason, the impetus behind which Paul now addresses this, this matter of sanctification, this matter of justification, because the Jews had been steeped in the fact that they could earned their own righteousness. And, and, and the Gentiles had, had been steeped in the fact that they didn't really care. They were a law unto themselves. And so here now you have both groups that are coming together in the church. And I mean the capital C church, not just the church in Rome, but in the body of Christ. And Paul finds it necessary. The apostle Paul finds it necessary to address this issue. It's very important for them, obviously, or he wouldn't have taken the time. I mean, he gives an exhaustive treatment of it here. Very important for us. There are legalistic bunches out there. There are legalistic churches out there, groups out there that would compel people to live a certain way in order to be good with God. That's just not true. Now, I want to be careful here. We'll talk about what it is to be saved unto good works, as we see in Ephesians. However, that is not the means by which we are declared righteous before God. So there would have been an awkwardness at least, if, if not strife in the church. And so what the apostle does now is he addresses man's universal need for righteousness for both Jews and Gentiles. So in that, we looked last week at, at chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. And, and For those of you that were here, just bear with me. I want to read it again. And I'm going to read the whole thing through with a little commentary, maybe. Uh, But I want to read it through uh, so that we can understand what he's getting at in chapter 4. Because remember, folks, in the Bible, in the original, there there, there are no such thing as chapter breaks. That was inserted by man, and, and that's a good thing because it helps us to organize the scripture, but he is continuing with the same flow of thought that he began in chapter three as he breaks into chapter four. So uh, in chapter three, verse 21, we read, but now the righteousness of God, and, and pay attention to that word. Remember, that occurs several times. He talks about four different times in these short verses, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, that's the law of Moses, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Remember, the gospel goes to all. It goes to everyone, but it is only effective to those who believe. That's what he says here. He says there's no difference 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, he was the one who wore the wrath of God for you, for me. And it's through his blood that we are cleansed. So that we, it was through his life, the exchange, he says, give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. That's what it's talking about here. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Remember, we talked about sort of the divine conundrum there that how does a holy and righteous God justify? How does he save a sinful people. And, and, and the, the way that he accomplishes that is through the substitutionary death of his son, through the, the atoning death, bringing two parties who are estranged together. That's what atonement means. And so that's what he's saying here. He's talking about through his forbearance, he passes over the sins that were previously committed. He doesn't just say, oh, it's okay. He wouldn't be God if he did that. Uh, he's holy. So, but through the blood of Christ, through the propitiation uh, that Christ was for us, God now can pass over the sins. And the, the, the imagery there is the same as back in the book of Exodus with the Passover, where they put the blood on the, on the doorpost and the lintels, and the angel of death passed over. That's where that term comes from. Uh, the people that who had the blood. And it's the same symbolism that's fulfilled in Christ. So he says in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. In other words, you can't say that you contribute anything to this equation. It is solely the work of God. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, all you have to do Profoundly simple, so simple that people miss it often, is believe. Simply believe that he did the work on your behalf. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In other words, uh, the things that he does. He says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Again, Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish. Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. Powerful language there. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, in chapter 4, Paul now illustrates his point by referring to two of the greatest figures in Israel's past. He talks about Abraham, and then he'll go in and talk about King David. Now, with these two guys, these are two of the main characters, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're two of the main players in the, in the Old Testament. Abraham, God had made a covenant with him. And in Genesis 12, we read what that covenant was. God says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When we get to talk about King David here in verses 5 through 8, we see that God made a covenant, an agreement. That's what it means. It's a contract with David. In the Davidic covenant, God promises to raise up an eternal kingdom 
through David's seed. Jesus would be referred to as the son of David because what had happened was that David had said, God, I want to build you a house. Speaking of the temple. And David, he had the plans drawn. He wanted to do that. And God said, no, David, you have too much blood on your hands. But let me tell you what I'm going to do. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's a beautiful story because what God does, he says, let me build you a house. And, and the house of David would be his family lineage that would come down to and that Jesus would be born into fulfilling the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament and fulfilling the covenant that God made with him. We know that as far as the Abrahamic covenant goes, that we are the fulfillment of that because he says, through you, the families of the earth will be blessed. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul, the same guy that wrote this letter, talks about Abraham at length. And he essentially lays out the difference between seeds and seed. In other words, seeds would be the literal population of the people that he says, you're not Abraham's seed in that sense. It's not to a limited group, but you're the spiritual seed by faith of Abraham. That's the church. That's you and I. That's the fulfillment of that covenant. So now as we get into Romans chapter four, I just want to have that for some background as we talk about these two individuals, because what Paul has to say here is pertinent to our understanding of what justification is and how it applies in our lives. Because let's take it out of the theoretical. Let's take it out of the doctrinal, which is good. It's important. We need good good doctrine. We need solid, sound doctrine. But let's see how does it apply to people's lives. He uses these two guys to show that. And then by extension, we'll talk about what does it mean to us towards the end of the message this morning. In Romans 4, we see that he imputes his righteousness. He, And it's not making someone righteous, it's imputing righteousness. And there's a difference, all right? So that he imputes his righteousness to real people. I'll read the first four verses of chapter 4, then we'll come back and unpack them. He says, what shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And think, what on earth does all that mean? What he's saying is the way of righteousness by faith is open to all. It's not just, uh, it's, it's open to actual people. It's not just to this nation or to this patriarch, but he's developing and he's extending the theological argument that he puts forth in chapter three using Abraham, uh, as he's done years earlier, as I mentioned in the book of Galatians. Galatians was either the first or the second of the New Testament writings, uh, or Galatians or First, Thess- or First Thessalonians. And, and there's some debate about that. But it was a very early writing. And Paul uses Abraham going all the way back to when he first began writing to these churches and explaining to them the nuts and bolts of what salvation was about. There are three reasons that I see that Paul is using Abraham as an example here. And if you remember in chapter 2, we talked about boasting. We talked about what the Jews did, what they put their confidence in, as opposed to their confidence being in Christ. The, uh, they, they, and they, they were boasting in the wrong stuff. 
This is review, but it's important because what he does is he applies what he had to talk to, to say in chapter two. He applies it when it comes to Abraham. The first, the Jews put their confidence in their heritage. And Abraham, he, he was the patriarch of their nation. You want to talk about heritage? He was the head guy. He was the original guy and he was greatly used of God. The second thing that we see that they put their confidence in is that they boasted in the right of circumcision. We talked about that. In our lives, we could say, well, I was baptized as a baby. Essentially, so what? Where is your heart with Christ? If we could put our, our confidence, we could put our confidence in our heritage. Well, I'm a Catholic. Well, I'm a this or I'm a that. But if our confidence isn't in Christ, then that's not enough. We want to boast in a religious rite. Well, I was baptized uh, in summer camp back when I was 16 and I've lived a life of debauchery since. How does that count? We can boast in the wrong stuff. So Abraham was justified prior to being circumcised because what he talks about, and we'll get into that next week, the whole aspect and in, in the, the, the terms behind the circumcision that Abraham had, because actually we're told, and we'll look at it next week, that circumcision was the result of Abraham being justified by faith. It was not it was not the cart before the horse, and we can get that wrong. And the Jews were getting it wrong. They boasted in circumcision as a mark of the covenant. Remember, we talked about that, but they had no real care about what that mark represented. They didn't, they didn't carry out and live according to the covenant that God had, the covenant of law. The third thing that we see with Abraham is the Jews boasted in the laws of Mo- the law of Moses. They lived and they had volumes of interpretations of the law of Moses, but they lived according to the law of Moses. But we see here that Abraham was justified by faith before 430 years before the law was given. And, and Paul's going to bring that out. So in verse one, he says, what shall we say that Abraham, our father is found according to the flesh? Literally what that's saying is, what was it that Abraham discovered with respect to the way which a person enters into a right relationship with God? What is it about? In chapter three, Moses was a primary figure. We saw that, the law of Moses. Paul now goes behind Moses and he asks, what about Abraham? So what about this other guy, this patriarch, this head of the Jewish people, the Jewish race, what about him? He says, essentially, Moses brought the law, but Moses had even, or, but Abraham had even greater importance as the father of the nation. And that's true. In verses 11 and 12, like I said, we'll look at that. We'll see that Paul's intent in chapter four was to show that in a sense, Abraham was the father of both Jews and Gentiles. Because Abraham, again, as the father of the nation, this is long before the nation of Israel came about. It wouldn't be, that that term wouldn't even come into existence until Abraham's grandson, a guy by the name of Jacob, wrestled with an angel one night. And, and he said, I'm not letting go till you bless me to the angel. And he says, no longer will you be called Jacob. From now on, you'll, your name will be Israel. So long before the nation of Israel. So when we look at Abraham, we see that there was a dramatic change in his life. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua, he has all of Israel assembled at the base of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It's up near Shechem. It's this beautiful area there. Uh, well, if you like rocks and dirt, it's beautiful. But uh, it was this area north of Jerusalem. 
And Joshua has everybody assembled there. And he says, you know what, folks, if you want to go back and you want to serve the gods of Abraham on the other side of the river, go ahead. Joshua 24, 15, very famous verse. And in that context, he says, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve Jehovah, Yahweh. So we see that Abraham had a notorious past. He was a pagan idolater before God got a hold of him, going all the way back. In chapter 17 of Genesis, we see that God changed his name. And God does that with people. Some people, I think about the Apostle Paul. Prior to being Paul, he was Saul. I think about Abraham Abraham here. His name was Abram, and it was changed to Abraham. And there's a reason for that. In Hebrew, names indicate purpose and character. Uh, and in Genesis 17:5, God says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Abram translates high father. Abraham, it's a different, it's a, it's a, it's a variation of that. It means father of a multitude. He says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. That's part of the covenant that he made with him. Well, so what Paul is saying here is that Abraham trumps Moses. And Abraham's faith trumps Moses' works of the law, straight up. So he's illustrating that this, in a very real sense, Abraham is superior to Moses, and faith is superior to law. Make sense? All right, bear with me on this. I know it gets a little complicated, but uh, there's some great application for you and I coming. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So what Paul is doing here is he's readdressing the problem of boasting from chapter 3, verse 27, which we read a few minutes ago, where it says, where is boasting? This conditional sentence, it's a rhetorical sentence. In other words, it asks a question and answers it. (laughs) It Literally, what he's saying is, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, which he wasn't, he had something to boast about, which he didn't. Makes sense. That's what he's saying in, in verse two. So the conclusion of that, of this rhetorical sentence is that he couldn't boast before God. That's a valid point. So if the likes of Abraham couldn't, if he couldn't work his way to God, what about you and I? Can we do enough? No. Again, rhetorical question. Can we? No, we can't. We're utterly at the mercy of God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, that word accounted is a really interesting word, folks. It's also rendered reckoned or imputed. In other words, he doesn't say he was made righteous. It says that he was accounted righteous. Now, on this side of the transaction, after coming to Christ, after knowing that I belong to him, God begins to work in my life and I begin to desire because I have different desires now. I begin to desire to, desire to live a Christ-like life, a desire to live a godly life, but that's never a means to salvation. It's a product of it. Understand that. Yes, is there a changed life involved? Absolutely, there is. We'll talk about that towards the end of the, the message here. But what he's saying is that Abraham simply believed God, and it was accounted to him. It was reckoned to him. Notice he doesn't say Abraham believed in God. Um, That's not the kind of belief that's being spoken of here. 
We're told in the Bible that the demons believe and they shudder. What he's talking about is faith unto righteousness. What he's talking about is faith that is a result of trust. Uh, It's not the same. We live in a very deistic society. What I mean by that is deism is a real thing. That's where people will say, well, I believe in God. They have no care for what that means. There's no understanding or a desire for understanding that there are conditions to coming to having a relationship with God. And that is the work, the person in the work of his son. And so deism doesn't cut it. Very often what I see, and it's very sad and kind of sickening, is that with a social oriented gospel uh, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it's promoted above the gospel of Christ. Folks, if you ever end up in a church where they're promoting that kind of stuff, run. It's not good. It's terrible doctrine. It's man-centered instead of God-centered. And it will do you harm. Where moral things are put forward, uh, therapeutic things are put forward, psychological things, all of that. But it guts the gospel. I'm not saying that we don't live in a moralistic world, that we don't live morally. I'm not saying that we don't want to have an understanding of, of, of life. But that flows from an understanding of the gospel. It's never again a means towards it. There's a difference between making an accounting or reckoning or imputing one righteous. The Greek word here is logizomai. And it means literally, it's an accounting term. It means to balance the books. It means to keep a record of accounts involving both debits and credits. It's what we would look at as a balance sheet in business accounting. As we get to chapter 5, in the next chapter, we're going to see that we were born in the negative column. We had a big debt. And that's true. We need to understand that. We'll get to that when we talk about death in Adam, where uh, through one man, sin came into the world. And through the second Adam, Jesus, sin was dealt with once for all. But we're not just accounted not guilty here. But what Paul is saying here is we're accounted righteous. In other words, you don't just come up to the line. Yeah, it's absolutely true. The debt was paid. The debt is canceled. Colossians talks about the certificate of debt, which exists against us, was folded in half. It was canceled. It was taken out of the way. That's true. However, that only goes part way. It's part of what I meant when I said last week that when you look at justification, it doesn't mean just as though I'd never sinned. That's part of it. The debt's been canceled, but a true understanding of justification is, yeah, the debt's been canceled, but righteousness has been added to my account in inexhaustible supply. In other words, it's way off the charge. I I can never exhaust the righteousness of God that he has placed on my life. Why? Because it's the righteousness of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. And having lived a perfect life, There is no way that his righteousness being put on my life, that it'll never be not enough. It's very much enough. Verse four, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So a man that works for wages, the wages are due as a debt. If I were working, you know, down at the gas station and I put in my, uh, weekly hours. And I went to my boss and he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I want my check. 
that's a debt. He has a debt to me. And so what he's saying here is in the physical world, in, in the, the in the real world, he who works, his wages are counted as a debt. So it's understand in understanding that, it's simple enough to understand that principle, but don't seek to apply that to salvation. God didn't design it that way. No one ever attained righteousness by working for it. Righteousness is not manufactured. Again, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, of Paul's day, many in our day will imply that you have to do or be a certain way in order to be in. No, no, it's just not so. That's why the gospel is open to everyone. That's why somebody on death row can sincerely embrace Christ and go to heaven. That's why somebody who has lived a moral life and has done everything right, paid their taxes on time, all the stuff, but if they don't know Christ, they're not going to make it. Because it doesn't have to do with work, whether it's good work or not good work. A good way to look at this is is if it was by works, the debt would be God's. Because what I'm saying, if I'm basing it on work, is that God is in my debt. He owes me. That's what Paul is saying here. But if it's by grace, the debt is mine. And he paid it. Essentially, you'll never work hard enough to earn it. Added to that, God will never be a debtor to man. The point in all of this is that God doesn't just balance the books. He imputes righteousness in inexhaustible measure by his grace. It's all by grace. It's all his unmerited favor towards me, towards you. It's all him saying, I love you because I choose to love you, not because you're all that lovable. And folks, believe me, you should see me at home. I'm not all that lovable all the time. My wife would argue. She'd say I am all the time. (laughs) Jesus illustrates this in Matthew chapter 18. I want to go there. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to look at verse 21 and following. This is a great story. And many of you will know it. Peter, (laughs) good old impetuous Peter, he, he was feeling a little proud, a little boastful one day. And he was kind of had this works mindset. And he came to Jesus in verse 21 of Matthew 18. He came to Jesus one day and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. And and the rule in that day was three. The rabbis taught you, you need to forgive somebody three times before you <laughs> wash your hands of them. But Jesus says to him in verse 22 of Matthew 18, I, I don't say to you up to seven times, Pete, I inserted that, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, an infinite amount. He's not saying you have to forgive somebody 490 times. It's not the point. So Jesus removes the limits altogether. And then he tells a parable to illustrate the point. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Verse 23, Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like... now. You know that you're getting into a parable because what the word parable means is to lay down alongside of. Parabola is the Greek word. And what it means is that Jesus is going to take a kingdom principle and he's going to tell a story, an earthly story, and lay it down alongside of a heavenly principle, a kingdom principle. And so when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, 
That's the parallel that he's, he's going to start drawing this parallel. It's like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts. There's that term that Paul talks about here in Romans 4. He wants to settle accounts with his servants. And, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, depending on who you do your math with, because there's some wide disagreement on how much a talent was worth. Uh, anywhere on the low end, I, I came up with 12 million bucks. On the high end, a billion dollars. The point is that what Jesus is saying is this guy has very clearly, he has an unpayable debt. He has a debt that there is no way he will ever, ever be able to service. Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Not a chance. The guy is gesturing here, pleading with his master, making an unreasonable offer to pay. You can't pay enough. It's, it's, again, the parallels between what we see here in Matthew and what we're looking at in Romans are pretty striking when you look at this. Verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debts. He justified this guy. He says, debt's paid. You owe me nothing. Then the master of that servant, again, it says he was moved with compassion. One of the things I love when I read the gospels, folks, I mentioned it before, but it is such a striking picture that when Jesus would be with a crowd of people, it says that when he looked out over the multitudes, the huge crowds that had come to follow him, it doesn't say he looked out over the multitudes and he saw these wretched, sinful, ugly people that just couldn't get it right to save their lives. No, it says he was moved with compassion. That's his attitude towards you this morning. It's his attitude towards me. When he looks at my life, I have a dear old friend that many years ago told me, you know, John, we're just little people. And and that's always stuck with me because we're just little people. We're just trying to get through the day. And God looks at us and he sees us as we are. He's moved with compassion. And these people that have a debt that there's that it's impossible to pay. It's this compassion that comes into play here. Forgives the entire debt. That's grace. It's exactly what God does with us. Verse 28, but that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So here you have a guy that's, he's got a debt upwards of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is. And he goes out and he lays hands on a guy that owes him a hundred days wages, three and a half months wages. Uh, well, quick calculations, one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he owed that was forgiven him. He goes out and lays hands on a guy for. Now, I can't, I can't go through this parable. I mean, remember, this started with Peter asking him a question. Well, how about, how many times should I forget? Oh, Jesus, you know, I'm thinking seven. That's pretty good, right? You know, wink, wink. <laughs> By this point, I just picture Peter staring at the dirt. <laughs> it's like, I maybe shouldn't have asked him this because he had been pretty thoroughly deflated at this point. Continuing on in verse 28, it says, He laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begging him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. As contrasted with the guy that had him, 
This is an honest attempt to make it right. Verse 30, and he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay off the debt. How long are you going to pay off a debt when you're in prison? It's going to take a while. So his, when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. And they came and they told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. In other words, it's going to be a while there. So my heavenly father, Jesus making a point now from this parable. So my heavenly father shall also do to you if if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses looking at what it is to be freely justified in God's eyes, looking at what it is to have the debt not just forgiven, but to be have righteousness added to our account that we could never exhaust. Four questions come out of this by way of application. The first is this. How often have you sinned against God? Pretty quiet in the room. I know my life. I know that the basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. Things you think, things you say, things you do. How often have you fallen short? Folks, you and I are that man that had an unpayable debt. Second question, are you working to be justified before God on the basis of settling up with him? Do you really think you can do that? Do you really think that you have a chance to make it right? That's work. That's what he's talking about here. And I understand in context, when I have people tell me, I'm trying to be a good Christian, I understand what they're, what they're, what they're intending by that. That particular saying drives me kind of nuts. Because you can never be a good... When the rich young ruler who we looked at a couple weeks ago, when he came to Jesus and tell me, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Good teacher. And Jesus said, nobody's good, but God alone. It's not about being good. It's not the basis of our justification. There's a subtle difference in the mindset. We'll talk about it here in a minute. Third question. How much have you been forgiven? How much has been forgiven you? This stuff is piercing. I can't stand up here and preach this without looking over my life and and, and being like that man, just throwing myself at the feet of Jesus and saying, oh God, thank you. Thank you that your forgiveness is so durable and that it's real. It's not just in the realm of doctrinal folks. What we're talking about is real justification for real people. We've been justified by his blood. The fourth thing, the fourth question is God's grace, a reality in your life is seen in how you deal with other sinners. I don't know about you, but I tend to sometimes become arrogant I caution you from time to time, don't fall into the black hat, white hat syndrome. Like we're all, we're Christians. We got white hats. (laughs) And those people out there in the world, they got black hats. Kind of a subtle way of look at me. Folks, if it's not for the grace of God resting on your life and mine, we all have black hats. But his grace is resting on your life. If your life belongs to him this morning, his grace is resting on your life, that his justification has come to you and you have been declared righteous in such a manner that you could never wear it out. 
Praise God. Now, Paul's going to come back to Abraham in verse 9, which we'll get to next week. But now he shifts his focus to King David in verses 5 through 8. I'm going to read through and then we'll come back again and, and look at it. He says in verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. There's that term again. It's not earned. It's accounted to him. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. He's saying that his faith is accounted. And then he says in verse 6, he says that in verse 5. In verse 6, he says God imputes. It is the same word. It's that same logizomai. It's the same word. It's the same accounting term that it is added in such abundance that you can't, you can't measure it. In verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute, that's the same word again, sin. So we see in these verses the antithesis of a works-related mindset. And, and the, I'll tell you what, folks, the result, if you understand this, it should produce in you a sense of real humility. I, man, that's too, too tall of a hill for me to climb. I'll never make it on my own. I humbly throw myself at the mercy of God. I humbly receive his forgiveness. I humbly want to live a life of blessedness and gratitude towards him. So in verse five, he says, uh, again, he says, but to him who doesn't work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. This seems odd to me in my, in, in the natural, in my flesh. Uh, we think it should read, he justifies the godly. But that's not the case. The justification of the ungodly is the whole point of what he's saying here. Again, this is real people. This is coming out of the realm of theory, out of the realm of head knowledge, and apply it to your life, to my life, because that's what he's saying. He justifies the ungodly. In Romans 5, uh, we're going to read that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Who qualifies? Yeah, that's right. Implications of this passage for a true doctrine of salvation are enormous. If you don't understand anything else this morning, understand that you don't come to God. You are, it is the emperor's new clothes. You come thinking that you got all this wonderful clothing and you are naked before God because none of us will measure up. And he's done all the work. Isaiah the prophet spoke about this. In Isaiah 53, 5, uh, Isaiah wrote, he says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes were healed. In Isaiah 53, 5, there, he says, he was wounded. He was bruised. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes were healed. Who's doing the work? The point in all of that is I can't attain righteousness in my own merit or by my own good works. It's a grace-based free gift from God. Period. And it comes only through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice at the cross. It all goes back to the cross. It all goes back to when Jesus prophesied in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at that one point in his ministry, he said, 
Now, there's a shift here. There was a shift in his ministry when it said that he began to tell his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and to be arrested and to be tortured and to be crucified and rise on the third day. He told them ahead of time so that when it came to pass, they would understand it was all part of God's plan to begin with. Why? For your justification and mine. So it's not, un, it's not as though works are unimportant or somehow bad. I want you to understand that too. That's not the case. Uh, the works, though, follow this understanding of what it is to be justified by God. What it is to have God's righteousness placed on my life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, we read, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Again, that's, that's, that's the offer. <laughs> and that not of yourselves. Nothing you do. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, and pay attention to this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't get the cart before the horse is essentially what's being said here. It's your salvation will never come on the basis of works. Does that mean that good works are out of it? No, no, not at all. James said, show me your faith. I'll show you my works. Because we were saved unto good works. God has prepared those good works for us to walk in. But it's never a means for salvation. It's never a means for the basis of the relationship that we have with God. Verse 6 is just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So in verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes King David from Psalm 32. It's interesting to note here that as far as David is concerned, now, with Abraham, he's talking about works. He's saying, no, no, it's, it's not about that. But there, there were no good works. David was already justified before God. There's no good works involved here with what Dave, or what Paul is saying regarding David. But even though there are no good works talked about here, sin is. Sin was part of David's life. In verse 7 and 8, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now he's talking about imputing righteousness. There's that same term. He's talking about you're blessed that God doesn't impute sin to you. So the far-reaching nature of justification is seen as having a greater advantage. Since David was actually already a justified man, he was known as a man after God's own heart. In this case, we learn the truth that sin in the life of a believer, a true believer, does not nullify or cancel justification. Folks, I hope that lights your fire because I'll tell you what, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And by simply believing that Jesus performed the act of redemption on my behalf, it's, covered. it's not just covered, it's eliminated. In Hebrews chapter 7, talking about our ongoing life, knowing that we sin, knowing that we fall short, knowing that as Christians, the ideal is there. And then there's the reality and the tension that exists between the two. We have the ability to stay current with God. We have the ability to to walk in newness of life is what the Bible calls it. Hebrews chapter seven, verses 24 and 25, we read Jesus as our high priest. Now, What the writer in Hebrews has done, he's gone to great lengths to illustrate the fact that Jesus is a superior high priest than the high priest they had in the Old Testament. Because 
Those guys were men. They died. They sinned. They had to go and purify, do the acts of purification for themselves before they could go and represent the people to God and God to the people. That's just how it was. So Jesus is a better high priest because he lived a sinless life. He also doesn't die. Jesus is our high priest because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is a, in other words, as I blow it, as I perhaps snap at my wife or somebody cuts me off on the road, which, which I never get upset about. Not true. I have the ability to take that to my high priest and to say, Lord, please forgive me. First John chapter one, verse nine. If you don't have that verse memorized, you should. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does his justification cover me? Yeah, even when I sin, I'm still justified. And yet I have the ability to stay current with him, to keep, to maintain fellowship with him. It's kind of like you know, when my kids were growing up, <laughs> I, if they did something wrong, which they regularly did, whether they're bonking each other on the head or whatever it was that kids do, I didn't, they didn't stop being my kids. However, we, I enjoyed wonderful fellowship with my kids and, and we had a great relationship as many parents do most but the fellowship when they when they blew it when they sinned that fellowship was broken it was cut off because now my job is not come on up onto daddy's lap and let's talk and bounce around and goof off and wrestle or whatever now my job is i need to correct that i need to chastise my kid i need to so and and it's very much how our relationship with god works guys We are children of the living God. His love is upon us. That relationship is unbroken. But when I decide that I'm going to go out there and I'm going to strip out a bunch of line and I'm going to cut and run, he is faithful as a loving father to do what's necessary to reel me back in. Very much like with my kids. So I see a difference between relationship and fellowship. Fellowship is broken with sin. And yet... He is the one who works to restore that. So what's the transaction? When we see the point in all of this is that God justifies the sinner. The transaction is this. Repent and believe. Acts chapter 20, Luke writing, uh, giving an account of when the apostle Paul was at a town called Miletus, a little south of Ephesus. And he had called for the elders from the church at Ephesus to meet him. Uh, They had a little pastor's conference or something, but uh, they got to Miletus so that they could gather together away from the crowds, away from all the hustle, where he could just spend time with them because he knew he would never see them again. They end up in that passage, they end up just weeping together and falling on one another's necks and hugging, kissing one another because there was a great love between them over their common calling to fulfill the work of the gospel. Anyway, Paul is talking to these elders in Miletus, these Ephesian elders, the guys from the church at Ephesus. And he says in verse 20, he says, I kept nothing back that was helpful. 
but I proclaimed it to you. And I taught you publicly and from house to house back in the time when he was planting and growing the church at Ephesus. He spent several years there. In verse 21, this is, again, it ties totally to what we're talking about in Romans. He says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, Gentiles, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Proverbs 28, 3 says, he who covers or hides his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Repent and believe. Now, some see repentance and faith as two separate successive steps. It looks like this. I repent or I I express a deep regret for my sins and a willingness to forsake them. And then I can believe in Christ so that he'll save me from these sins and that I regret and have forsaken. Folks, that's flawed thinking. It sets up a mindset that you've heard before. I have many times. Well, as soon as I get my act together, then I'll come to Christ. That's not what is meant by repent and believe. I see that as two sides of the same coin. They're, They're two distinct pieces of the same transaction. Another way of viewing repentance and faith is that they're two simultaneous facets, flip sides of the same action. And it looks like this, and you'll see there's a difference. At the same time that I initially trust, believe in Christ to be my savior, I'm abandoning, I'm repenting of the trust that I formerly placed in other things. As a result, my thinking is totally flipped. Repent and believe are linked in God's word. What repent means is change your mind. I am not coming to true faith unless I'm changing my mind about some things. That's what's being said. So in my life as a believer, God shows me the error of my ways in some area or some mindset or some treatment of others or whatever it is. And I say, Lord, I don't want that in my life. Change me from the inside. I'm changing my mind about that. I want to do it your way. I want to have love for that person who's just driving me crazy. I want to have love for that person who's just got all kinds of evil intentions towards me. That's trusting him. That's repenting and believing. When it comes to the gospel, those two things are critical. It's The transaction looks something like, God, I know I've lived my life away from you. I know that I've not lived for you. I change my mind about that. I repent. I turn from the old life and I believe you. At that moment, a person is justified. At that moment, the righteousness of God flows into that person's life in inexhaustible measure, as I, as I said. At that moment, their life is changed. Folks, I have talked to so many people over the years, decades, that have said, you know, John, I was living this way and I never really set out to change my life. I just gave my life to Jesus and said, you know, here I am. He will work in your life. He will conform you to the image of his son. He will transform your mind. You're changed. The Bible says we're changed by the renewing of our minds. That is a result of salvation. That's a result of having been justified. When we're justified before God, it's a real thing. God gives righteousness to real people, you and me. If you don't have that righteousness on your life, you need it. Simply turn from the old life 
Ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit because he is the one who brings 